All right. So, today we're talking about baptism. Two weeks ago, we discussed the first mark of the true church, which was the pure doctrine of the gospel. Um, And for the sake of time today, I had a lot of content on baptism, what it is. I'm going to briefly address that and then spend most of the time on application today, um, taking some of the truths of baptism and considering them and how we might apply them um, in our lives and in the church and as a church uh, as a whole um, in this land and in the world, how baptism ought to be applied. So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about um, why the Reformers were focused on the sacraments as the mark of a true church. The first mark was the pure doctrine of the gospel. Um, The second mark that the Reformers identified was the proper use of the sacraments. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church had seven sacraments. The Reformers believed that there were only two, those which the Lord Jesus instituted in the New Testament, being baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so the Belgic Confession from 1561 says that we are satisfied with the number of sacraments that Christ our Master has ordained for us. There are only two, the sacrament of baptism and the Holy Supper of Jesus Christ. So rather than spending time today considering why the Reformers picked the sacraments as the second mark of a true church, I would simply like to focus our attention on baptism, the first of those ordinances, and present the Reformed Baptist position on it briefly. I might summarize that for the sake of time, and then make some points of application for us to consider. So first of all, the, um, the text for today's sermon, as Bobby read, was Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22, and I'm just going to be focusing uh, specifically on verses 3 and 7 through 14, um, and I'll just be making some points of application, as I said kind of summarizing some stuff here for the sake of time. So Luke chapter 3, verse 3, says, And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So it's a baptism of repentance, and that is a theme that we're going to be considering today. This baptism that John introduced, and that I believe is the one that was confirmed by Jesus and is to be applied um, to the New Testament church. So we read that, that he comes preaching this baptism of repentance. Okay, so remember that. We're going to revisit that. And then in verse 7 through 14, um, I'm not going to read through all this again, but the multitude comes to be baptized by John. And John says, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. So John the Baptist is preaching this baptism of repentance, calling on the people that come to him, to repent of their sins, and to manifest the life um, that demonstrates they have, in fact, repented. When uh, the publicans come to be baptized by him, they ask him, what shall we do? And he gives them some specific instructions, and we're going to look at that um, when we get to the application um, stage of the sermon. So I'm not going to read all this again for the sake of time. We just had it read to us, but we will come back and visit um, these these verses again. Now, this passage in Luke chapter 3, along with Matthew 3 and Mark 1 and John 1, give us the first glimpse of baptism in the New Testament. John the Baptist came proclaiming a baptism of repentance. That means that his message, his baptism, centered around a personal change of life. Lineage, 
um, family lineage, who your parents were, was of no importance in John's baptism. There was no hint that because who your parents were meant that you should be baptized in John's baptism. Again, we see that in verse 8. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So children, remember that, that your relationship to your parents does not give you special privilege when it comes to faith in Christ. And as we'll see when it comes to baptism, as I'll make the case. So John's baptism demanded fruits worthy of repentance rather than family lineage. We see that clearly here in verse 8. Now after John's death, Jesus' disciples actually continued to baptize. We see that in John chapter 4, verse 2. And then only 36 months later, immediately prior to his ascension, Jesus gave what is known as the Great Commission, in which he commands baptism of disciples. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So, Jesus commands baptism. Baptism is introduced to us by John the Baptist. It's continued by Jesus' disciples. Jesus commands it as part of the Great Commission. And then when we get to the book of Acts, and right now I'm just summarizing the New Testament theology of baptism as it's presented so that we can get to some application for the sake of time. When we get to Acts, baptism in Acts, it's always presented as a hearing of the gospel, a repenting of sin, and then a a baptizing. So in Acts chapter 2.28, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You see there, there is repentance and being baptized. In Acts chapter 8, But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. In Acts chapter 18, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. There's many more passages in Acts, but I wanted to show you three as an example of the structure that baptism is presented in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, that baptism follows repentance and faith. And as we'll see, Crispus' house there believed on the Lord. So we'll address that briefly when we get to um, an argument for, for infant baptism. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, sheds further light on the the ordinance of baptism, relating it to the believer's death to sin and resurrection to newness of life through Christ. I'm not going to read that. It's Romans chapter 6, verse 2 and 6. And also Paul does in Colossians, I'm going to put that up, in Colossians 2, 12, the Apostle again shows the connection between baptism and the believer's death to sin and resurrection to newness of life he says, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So from these texts and others, we see that baptism represents a believer's repentance from sin 
death to sin and cleansing from sin, a raising to newness of life and purposing to walk in obedience thereafter. So due to these passages and many more, uh, the Reformers developed a rich theology of baptism and what it means. Now the scope of this sermon will not permit me to consider all those points. Again, um, hopefully we can talk about those at other times and this will just kind of whet our appetite for studying more of this ordinance that Jesus has instituted. Now, uh, I want us to look at the one confession I want us to look at is the Second Helvetic Confession of Faith. This was the document of the Reformed Church in Switzerland, and these folks were not um, cradle Baptists. That means they baptized infants, and I'm going to make the case that that's not the biblical um, view, it's not the biblical doctrine, but yet these men and many of the Reformers and most of the Puritans were paedo-Baptists, um, yet there was much of baptism that they, they got, I believe, and understood rightly. So I want us to consider this one section from the Second Helvetic Confession of Faith of the obligation of baptism. It says, Moreover, God also separates us from all strange religions and peoples by the symbol of baptism. It's a symbol of separation and consecrates us to himself as his property. We, therefore, confess our faith when we are baptized and obligate ourselves to God for obedience and mortification of the flesh and newness of life. Hence, we are enlisted in the holy military service of Christ that all our life long we should fight against the world, Satan, and our flesh. Moreover, we are baptized into one body of the church that with all members of the church we might beautifully concur in the one religion and in mutual services. So, while this is not a Reformed Baptist document, I believe it contains elements that only make sense from a Credo Baptist perspective. It states when we are baptized that we confess our faith. An infant is not confessing anything when he or she is baptized. It goes on to say that we obligate ourselves to God for obedience. It would be unreasonable to tell a man who was baptized unknowingly that in his baptism he confessed his faith and furthermore obligated himself to obedience. And again, we'll see that again when we consider John the Baptist's comments. And upon baptism, this is my favorite part, it says that we are enlisted in the holy military service of Christ. Baptism is a symbol of our willing enlistment into the Lord's army. Now, as someone who does not believe in the draft and enforced enlistment, I believe that um, this uh, figure of speech, this symbol, shows us that when we are baptized, we are voluntarily going to war with Christ against the world, against Satan, and even against our own flesh. So, despite um, the fact that I believe these truths only make sense from the credo-baptist position, which is the biblical position, which is that you should be baptized based on your profession of faith, which would therefore um, limit baptism to those who are able to make a profession, therefore not infants. Despite that fact, uh, I want to give us some historical understanding here of what the, uh, many of the Reformers viewed, how they viewed the credo-baptist position. Now, they're going to say the Anabaptists. I'm going to tell you in a minute that the Reformed Baptists were not Anabaptists, but yet they shared their view in this. So the confession goes on here. It says, We condemn the Anabaptists who deny that newborn infants of the faithful are to be baptized. Okay, so 
These, these reformers said you should baptize infants, even though we confess our faith and obligate ourselves for obedience. For according to evangelical teaching, speaking of children here, it says, of such is the kingdom of God, and they are in the covenant of God. Why then should the sign of God's covenant not be given to them? Why should those who belong to God and are in his church not be initiated by holy baptism? We condemn also the Anabaptists and the rest of their peculiar doctrines, which they hold contrary to the word of God. We therefore are not Anabaptists and have nothing in common with them, end quote. Now, like I said, it should be noted, the Reformed Baptists were not Anabaptists. Uh, we read that, I think, in the introduction to the Confession. The Anabaptists had some other views that the Reformed Baptists distanced themselves from, and that's why they adopted, essentially, the Westminster Confession of Faith with slight modifications, namely on baptism, church polity, and a couple other minor things. But baptism and church polity were the main things, and a view of the covenant, but there's still great similarity there. Nevertheless, the Reformed Baptists did and still do deny that newborn infants of the faithful are to be baptized. So in that sense, we would agree with the Anabaptists as far as their position that infants should not be baptized. Now, in, de, in their denunciation of the credo-baptist position, which is that infants should not be baptized, but those who profess faith, the um, Second Helvetic Confession gives four arguments that the kingdom of God belongs to children, right? Jesus said that it belongs to such as these. Children are in the covenant of God, according to their understanding. Since children are in the covenant, they should receive the sign of God's covenant. And children belong to God and are in his church, therefore they should receive the sign of baptism, which is now the sign of God's covenant. All right, there's a lot more to that, but that's their basic argument for infant baptism, is that the new covenant is made up of believers and their children, and since children are part of that covenant, they should receive the sign of the covenant, just as in the Old Testament, infant boys received the sign of the Old Covenant of circumcision, they should now receive the sign of baptism. Now, that whole uh, position hinges on the assumption that baptism replaces circumcision as a sign of God's faithfulness uh, to fulfill his promise to Abraham. However, we're going to look at the teaching of John the Baptist in Luke 3 demonstrates that baptism is not to be based on family lineage, but personal repentance. Okay, Bobby already read the confession of faith um, that says it's to be, it's a, there's a repentance, there's a death and resurrection, there's a cleansing from sin, there's a purposing, right, to walk in newness of life, a giving up of ourself. It's a symbol of being engrafted into Christ and by correlation the church. Now the key aspect that the Paedo-Baptists um, press is that children are in Christ and part of the church. And this is where I do believe they err by assuming that because an infant is born to Christian parents, they are to be considered part of the church, and in that sense, in Christ. So, for the sake of brevity, I just want to point out three simple reasons, to point out three reasons why the Reformed Baptist position makes more sense than the Pado-Baptist position. All right? So, we interact with people who believe in infant baptism. There are many good brothers, like I said, most of the Puritans. I don't believe they got the gospel wrong, but I believe they misunderstood this ordinance of Christ as it relates to baptism. So I want to point out three reasons, and there are many more, why the biblical data, and the third argument contains some historical data, why infants should not be baptized, um, but rather those who profess faith. 
So number one, and I'll go through these then briefly, is there is no command to baptize infants in the Bible. Number two, the new covenant is made up of the regenerate. And number three, and this will bring in some historical data, the connection between Jewish baptism, and I'll explain what I mean by that, John's baptism and Christian baptism favors credo-baptism, which is those who profess, believe, creed, credo, should be baptized. So, first of all, there is no command to baptize infants in the Bible. You can search high and low, but you'll never find a single command to baptize infants in the Bible. There is the command of Christ to make disciples and baptize, baptize disciples. The preaching in Acts, which called on men and women to repent and be baptized. And the examples of people being baptized upon believing the gospel. However, there is not one command to baptize infants in all of sacred scripture. If baptism, all right, and this is, this is what gets me from the paedo-baptist argument, that if baptism is the sign of the new covenant, which is to be applied to infants, one would expect there to be a command in Scripture saying that. When God gave circumcision as the sign of the covenant between Abraham and his offspring, and it wasn't between every Jewish parent and their child, it was between Abraham and his seed. When God gave that command, he clearly indicated who was to receive the sign, even specifying that it should be given to the infant boy when he was eight days old. Genesis chapter 17. Very specific, very clear, down to the very day that the sign of the Old Covenant was to be given. However, there is not even a hint in the New Testament or in the Old that infants should be baptized. In Matthew 19, where Jesus calls on us not to hinder children from coming to him, and we'll address that briefly, there's not a single drop of water in those verses. It has nothing to do with baptism. Now, there was a Baptist age strong who made an argument for credo-baptism, and um, he made two declarations, namely one, that there's no command to baptize infants in the New Testament, in all of Scripture, and number two, that there's no record of it. Not only will you not find a command to baptize infants, you won't find an instance of it in the Bible. And B.B. Warfield, who was a paedo-baptist, who I dearly love his theology on many things, though, was honest, and he, he said in response to uh, A.H. Strong's arguments that there was no command. He says, in this sense of the words, we may admit, and this is from a Paedobaptist, we may admit his first declaration that there is no express command that infants should be baptized. All right, he admits there's nothing in the Bible that commands us to baptize infants. And with it also, his second, so Strong's second point, which is this, that there is in Scripture no clear example of the baptism of infants. That is, if we understand by this that there is no express record, reciting it in so many words, that infants were baptized. So Warfield says, well, yeah, if you're asking me, if, is there a command in Scripture? No. And is there an example? Well, no, not exactly. If you want a, like a, a true example of, a of an infant being baptized, it's not there. So Warfield um, acknowledged that there's no example of it in Scripture, there's no command. Now, 200 years before that, Benjamin Keach um, asked the same question and said, Are infants of such as are professing believers to be baptized? Answer, the infants of such as are professing believers are not to be baptized because there is neither command nor example in the Holy Scriptures or certain consequence from them to baptize such. It's just not there. That argument alone leaves little room or no room in my mind for defending the Pado-Baptist position without imposing a system upon the Bible from the outside that says God has to bring over everything from the Old Covenant um, as it relates to the signs, but there's nothing in Scripture that delineates that. 
And as the uh, Pado-Baptist reformers believed in the regulative principle that we cannot add to God's word and we cannot, uh, we have to see what is expressly there and obey that, there is no command to baptize infants and there is no reason to assume that God made that a sign to be applied to infants. But there are more arguments for the credo-baptist position, the position that believers are to be baptized. And number two, briefly, is that the new covenant is made up, is made with the regenerate. Now, the, the, those who want to baptize infants argue that baptism is a sign of the new covenant now. They further assert that since circumcision was applied to children of the members of the old covenant, baptism should now be applied to the children of members of the new covenant. However, it should be noted that one was to be circumcised in the Old Covenant based solely on his descent from Abraham, regardless of his personal faith, even though God did demand faith and repent obedience from everyone. Those who baptize infants agree that baptism is only to be applied to adults, okay, in the case of the profession of faith. So let's say today, um, let's say I'm, I'm a, a new convert. I wasn't baptized as a child. Let's just say my parents did not baptize me and, and I hear the gospel and I'm converted and I want to become a Christian and join a church. The pedo-baptists would say, well, I need to be baptized, um, but it has to be based on my profession of faith. And I can't say to them, well, but my parents were Christians. They just forgot to give me the sign of the covenant. They're going to demand of me a profession of faith. However, in the Old Covenant, all right, so this again, this, this, their whole thing that the Old Covenant sign directly applies to the New Covenant falls apart because in the Old Covenant, circumcision was to be applied to children and adults irrespective of if they had personal faith in God. In Genesis 17, Abraham's servants, both young and old, were circumcised because they were in his house and he was giving them the sign. And also in Joshua chapter 5, the entire nation of Israel, these are grown men, who had not received the sign of the Old Covenant, were circumcised before going into battle because they hadn't received the sign. Now, certainly among that group, there were, there were those that did not have true faith, but they were all the true sons of Abraham according to the flesh. And so they received the sign. But one of the aspects that's new about the New Covenant is that it is made with the regenerate, with those who are born again, with those who, who have had their hearts changed by the Holy Spirit. In Jeremiah chapter 31, if you want to turn there, you can. If not, just listen. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah promises the new covenant and describes it in a way that is different from the old covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, he says, Behold, the days come, this is verse 31 of chapter 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this, okay, here it is. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law on in their inward parts and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The new covenant community is made up of those who have God's law written in their hearts. It is made up of those who have been born again, John chapter 3. The new covenant is constituted of those who have been born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, John chapter 1 verse 13. Now it is true that false converts will sometimes join the visible church. But such imposters are to be removed from the church 
when their sin manifests itself clearly. We'll look at that when we look at the, the third mark of a true church later on, 1 Corinthians 5, church discipline. Now, it's not our job to search out the false converts, right? If there's someone who comes into our church, we're not to, to be trying to determine whether or not they're a false convert, if they've made profession. But if their sin manifests itself, um, that they are truly a false convert, we are to um, remove them from the church. But simply because we're not to try to figure out, if, oh, are you a false convert, are you a false convert, it does not follow that we would willingly admit members, infants, who have given us no reason to believe that they are regenerate, other than their DNA, that they have Christian parents. So if the New Covenant community, and much more could be said on this, but I just want to summarize, it is made up of those who have been born again, they're regenerate, then we should not willingly bring someone into the New Covenant community as a member of the church simply because their parents have faith. And the third reason why, and there's many more that... um, Infant baptism should be rejected is the connection between Jewish baptism, John's baptism, and Christian baptism. Um, that connection favors credo baptism. Now, for the sake of time, I want to get into application, so I'm not going to go through these quotes. I'm just going to summarize this very briefly. <clears throat> in, in the Old Testament, there was one requirement for a Gentile convert converting to Judaism to worship the one true God, and that was circumcision. Now, the Jews, and this is historical data, added two things to that. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to worship the one true God of Abraham, you had to be circumcised, you had to make a sacrifice in the temple, and you had to be baptized. Baptism was not a new thing that John the Baptist um, instituted. Gentiles who wanted to become followers of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, had to be baptized. And if you look in the Old Testament, actually, there are many washing rituals and baptisms for, for Jews, that when they, if they um, touched a dead body or certain other things that happened to them, that they were unclean, they had to wash themselves in water and be cleansed. And so the Jews took that theme and said, okay, if you're, gonna, if you're a Gentile, you've been living your whole life in ritual uncleanness, and you want to become a part of the community of Israel You have to be circumcised, you have to give this sacrifice in the temple, and you have to be baptized. You have to be baptized to demonstrate that you are unclean before God, you've lived your life in Gentile and heathen uncleanness, and you need to be cleansed. Now, what's the significance of all that? Um, If you want some more information on that, let me know, I can get it to you later. But the point is this. When John the Baptist came proclaiming a baptism of repentance, right? Luke chapter 3, verse 3, his was a baptism of repentance. He was calling on Jews of the purest bloodlines, right? These Jews were descended from Abraham. They didn't need to be, they didn't need that Gentile bath. They didn't need that Gentile, they didn't need that because they were already living according to God's law and they were descended from Abraham. John came and said that, Those Jews needed to submit to a practice that was reserved for Gentiles, for the heathen, making a profession of faith in the one true God. He claimed declaring the message of the coming Christ, demanding all people, Jew and Gentile, to repent of their sins and forsake any reliance upon their physical connection to Abraham. I mean, that's so clear in the text that John says, do not say to yourself that Abraham is your father. And to me, that just... um, really goes against the infant Baptist position. The whole position is you are to be baptized because of your parents. And these guys, I mean, not only could they say, well, maybe their parents 
were faithful Jews, but they were descended from Abraham, with whom the old covenant was actually made. It was made with Abraham and his seed, not with all Jewish parents. So, uh, it was a baptism which would have no doubt humbled the proud Pharisees, men who took great pride in their connection with Abraham. It was a baptism which which called on Jewish men and women to admit... Here's the key that they had as much clean, they had as much need for cleansing from sin as the Gentiles did. That's why this was a humbling baptism, because the only ones who would be baptized for their profession of faith were Gentiles. It was a baptism based on personal repentance, irrespective of family connections. Therefore, it makes little sense based on the historical data, and I have a bunch of quotes here. I'm going to skip. I'm talking about this practice of Jewish baptism, but it makes no sense to say that John took that baptism and applied it to all people and said, you all need to be baptized based on your own profession of faith and own repentance, and then say that Jesus changed it all of a sudden, three years later, to include infants. When John came along and said, this is the baptism of repentance, Jesus submitted to it, even had his disciples baptize people in John chapter 4, and then he commanded that all his disciples should be baptized in the Great Commission. So those are three arguments for why the um, infant baptism position should be rejected as unbiblical. Um, there are many more, but the first one is the, the, the main one. The second one, very close to it. And that third one I thought was helpful as it gives us some historical understanding of baptism. Now, very briefly, let's consider some application. Um, I'm skipping these for now. So two points of application that I want to make based on baptism. Number one, obedience and baptism. And number two, our children in baptism. Okay. So number one, if we look at um, obedience and baptism. Now, this was a baptism of repentance. Okay. Now, what is repentance? Benjamin Keek says, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin... So you understand your sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. You understand that Jesus Christ can forgive your sins, does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So obedience is a key aspect of repentance. You're turning from serving self and you're going to endeavor after obedience. And children, I want you to especially listen to these last two points of application. I know my children have asked me about baptism. And I want you to consider these things and think about what baptism represents. So John demanded a, ch- a, heart, a changed heart and a changed life from his hearers. At the very least, he required a sincere acknowledgement of one's sin and need for forgiveness and desire to obey. This this is demonstrated by three facts, right? He called it a baptism of repentance. Number two, he questioned the motives of those coming to him. And number three, he gave practical application as it related to obedience to those who came to be baptized. And that's when we'll go back to our text here in a minute. All right, also, in further support of the connection between John's baptism and Christian baptism, Luke used the same language in Luke 3 as he did in Luke 24, speaking of Jesus' commission to evangelize. So John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, and then Jesus' commission to evangelize is that, he says that, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So it's the same message that Jesus 
had to spread that John brought. He was the forerunner of Christ. And therefore, there's nothing to suggest there was a different baptism now all of a sudden to be applied to infants. Now, um, when you compare Matthew 28, the Great Commission, it links obedience and baptism even um, in a more ironclad way. He says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So, it's clear that those who are baptized are entering into a life of obedience to all things that Jesus has commanded. This means that those who are to be baptized should be made aware of the requirement of obedience in the Christian life. Now, it's noted, right, well, you have to admit that in the New Testament, the baptisms come rather quickly after a profession of faith. Right? They're, they preach to them, they profess their faith, and they're baptized. There's no denying that. However, what we often fail to see is that the profession of faith came after much teaching on the truth of the gospel and the requirement for obedience. The conversion of the Philippian jailer is a good example. I'm not going to read it. Acts chapter 16, um, Paul teaches them. It says, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord. So Paul and Silas spake unto the Philippian jailer the word of the Lord and to all who were in his house. Okay? And he took them that same night and was baptized, he and all his straightway. Alright? So Paul teaches... Philippian jailer and his household believe. Again, there's nothing there saying infants are baptized. It says Paul and Silas teached his whole house. His whole house believed. They were all baptized. At first glance, it may seem that Paul gave a two-minute gospel presentation and then baptized the jailer and his family. However, the phrase that, and they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house is important to consider. By considering another account in the book of Acts, when Paul talks to Felix, we may readily discern that what were the main features of Paul's preaching? What were the main tenets that Paul taught the jailer? In Acts chapter 25, verse 24, it says, Paul, and as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, and if you look at the previous verse, it says Paul spoke about faith in Christ. So this is what Paul talked about when he's talking about faith in Christ, when he's sharing the gospel. Righteousness, temperance, or self-control, and judgment to come. Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. How many times have you heard that in your life when you're talking with someone about the things of the Lord? They say, all right, well, I'll think about this later. You know, Let's change the subject. Paul discussed righteousness, including the demand of God's law upon all mankind, and certainly specifically upon Felix. I'm sure he gave some application for Felix. It would have demanded that Felix put away his personal sin, something which would require that temperance or self-control, um, which was second, Paul's second point. And finally, Paul spoke of the judgment to come, just as John the Baptist did. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? All right, so by considering this, that this is what Paul, this is what Paul talked about when he shared the gospel, righteousness, temperance, judgment to come, by considering this, we can infer that Paul likewise spoke of these things to the Philippian jailer. Perhaps, and here's the point, perhaps what should draw our attention to these baptisms in the New Testament is not that the uh, the jailer and others were baptized so quickly upon their profession of faith, but perhaps this is what should surprise us, that the Philippian jailer and his family and others professed the faith so quickly after having it explained to them by the Apostle Paul. 
That which should, that should be the, the miracle, the work of regeneration, that Paul was not giving a soft gospel message. Paul was giving a message of righteousness, temperance, and self-control. Now, there will always be those, like Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8, who claim the name of Christ, even by hearing a strong presentation of the truth, without truly desiring obedience. That'll happen. But, I believe that most of the unconverted, when they are presented with the true gospel message, the true demand for baptism and repentance and faith, they'll be like Felix. And they'll say, you know what? I'm, I'm not interested in this. This is a little too much for me. I'll think about this. Come back later. So today, people are baptized left and right without hearing anything about the place of obedience in the Christian life. A man may say, but that's adding works to the gospel, right? Men only need to believe in Jesus to be saved. Baptism should be about whether or not someone believes in Jesus in their heart, right? That's the objection they'll make. You can't make this about obedience. Now, I reject that the demand for obedience is adding works to the gospel. Repentance and faith are evangelical graces that God freely gives to the elect, but they are requirements nonetheless. Without repentance, a man will perish. Jesus said as much, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, if I can't argue with someone logically who's, who's telling me, hey, you can't make obedience um, a factor in a baptism, if I can't reason logically with that, with that person, then I will be content to point to the example of John the Baptist, the great baptizer, and find my opponent silenced by the intensely practical place obedience played in John's baptism of repentance. Now Luke records three groups of people coming for baptism, the crowds, the publicans, and the soldiers. And the focus of their questions concerning baptism is this, what shall I do? And this is from our text, Luke chapter 3. John tells them essentially you need to obey God's law. You need to obey God. But he does not simply say that in a general way. He gives practical ways that God demanded obedience to each group of people. To the crowds, he instructed them to show true charity for others and share with the needy, verse 11. To the tax collectors, he demanded that they stop stealing from others, verse 13. To the soldiers, he commanded that they no longer extort money or use their position of strength to, pos- to oppress others, verse 14. Those unwilling to embrace the obedience that God requires are neglecting the baptism that they're claiming to desire. In our day, we might make application of this truth by highlighting the demands of obedience to those interested in the things of the Lord. A young man coming for baptism who's dilly-dallying around with his girlfriend of five years who wants to be baptized and says, what shall I do? Should be told, marry your girlfriend, lead and provide for her and raise up children. This is what God requires of you. A woman climbing the corporate ladder while her children are being educated and cared for by the state, wants to come and be baptized and says, what shall I do? She should be told by a John the Baptist figure, resign from your job and keep house, Titus 2.5. A statesman who should be told by a John the Baptist figure, govern and legislate according to the law word of God, not man's fallen and corrupt philosophies. Claim the name of Christ in public as you do in private. Many of these figures who who claim to be Christian, if they were told that by a John the Baptist figure, may think twice before being baptized and claiming to be a Christian. A husband who wants to be baptized should be told by a John the Baptist figure, love your wife, 
take seriously your charge to care for and nurture her and stop wasting your time on television, recreation, and worthless pursuits. Ephesians 5.25 A wife who comes to be baptized should be told by a John the Baptist figure when she asks, What shall I do? Submit to and honor your husband. For this is what Christ requires of women, of wives, coming to baptism. He demands obedience in every area of life. A parent should be told by a John the Baptist figure, train up your children in the way they should go. Take seriously the injunction to instruct the next generation, Ephesians 6.4. A child who comes to be baptized should be told by a John the Baptist figure, obey your parents, Ephesians 6, verse 1. Share with others, share with your siblings, right? Same command Jesus gave to the crowd certainly applies to us. If you are to be a Christian, you will be expected to suffer when wrong. And listen to this, children. I want you to think about this. As you think about baptism, if you are to be baptized and become a Christian, you are taking upon yourself the commands for obedience that Jesus gives his followers. He will demand your complete and perfect obedience. He will expect you to suffer when wronged and to choose to allow others to enjoy things when you do not. While you will never obey perfectly, Jesus demands your obedience in every area of life. And that's what you need to think about as you think about whether or not you want to be baptized. He commands that you share with others and bear patiently with the wrongs of others. If you cannot stand the thought of giving up your rights... I'm speaking to children here as much as to adults. That's my toy. That's my plate. That's my seat. If you can't stand the thought of giving up your rights in order to bless others, then you need to think more about the obedience that is tied to baptism. How many in our day who have been baptized and have taken the name of Christ upon themselves with the moniker of Christian would have done so if they were presented with the demands of obedience prior to their baptism? And um, Jesus, of course, you know, responds to the objection that, well, aren't you you're trying to prevent people from being baptized? Only inasmuch as Jesus sought to prevent people from haphazardly entering into Christian discipleship. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he haven't sufficient to finish it? You need to count the cost. You need to consider discipleship. Read that whole passage. It's very sobering to those who... Just willy-nilly say, oh yeah, I want to be a Christian. Don't even think about what it means to be a Christian. Jesus demands obedience, your complete obedience. No one should enter the Christian life, Christian faith haphazardly. The record of the New Testament argues in favor of baptizing upon a profession of faith. There's no denying that. They were made their profession of faith and were baptized. They didn't wait long periods. So there may be a place for a, a, a brief waiting. They didn't wait months and years. At the same time, the teaching of the New Testament leads one to believe that the obligation connected to baptism has been severely neglected in our generation. To be honest, listen, it matters little whether you wait a year or ten years for someone who's made a profession of faith. If obedience is never required of them, they'll never deny Christ if they don't have to do anything. So it doesn't matter how long you wait if no obedience is required. The requirement for those preaching the message of baptism the baptism of repentance and remission of sins is to make known what it is to have faith in Christ, as Paul did, walking in obedience to the command to the Lord's commands. Which leads us finally to our final point of application. Um, very briefly, children 
and baptism. So the Paedobaptists like to make this case, well, you're excluding your children from the covenant of God. You're, you're keeping them away from the church and from Christ. Um, and I, even if that's an emotional argument, I don't think there's biblical support for it, so I cannot accept it. But let us consider now briefly baptism and our children. And my point of contention with this brief um, section is this, just leave you something to think about. My point is this, that the standard for baptism as it relates to children today is too shallow, but that's only because our standard for baptism is too shallow as it relates to adults. As I've argued, children are not to be baptized based on their parentage. What then should be the grounds of their baptism? It should be the same as adults. Right? They're to be baptized, um, those who profess repentance, faith, and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Okay? So far, so good, right? Real quick, though, there's three common objections to baptizing children. And I'm not talking about an age here. Just take these general principles and think about them. Children often simply do things to please their parents. Number two, children are not capable of thinking deliberately about baptism and obedience. And number three, it is unwise to baptize a young person because they might express rebellion later on. I'm going to go through these rapid fire, and uh, we can talk later perhaps. These are my final three things here. Number one, let it be well noted that while children may be prone to do things to please their parents, they are tenfold as prone to do things to please themselves. As scripture tells us that folly is bound up in their heart. Furthermore, a parent should not be pressuring anyone, child or adult, to be baptized. So, as you've heard me today, I don't think that's pressuring someone to be baptized. That's um, warning them of the soberness of it. Not discouraging it, but making sure they understand it. Remember Jesus' warnings, right? Sit down, count the cost. And remember, it was the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, not Philip, who said, what hinders me from being baptized? Philip didn't say, hey, go get baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch said, I want to be baptized. What hinders me? And Philip, who had presented to him the truth, went through all scriptures, says nothing if you believe, because he had faithfully taught the gospel message. Finally, uh, for this point, if honoring one's parents plays a factor in one's desire to obey Christ, such a thing should not be frowned upon. Again, if honoring one's parents plays a factor, I'm not saying it's the reason, but if it plays a factor in one's desire to obey Christ, it should not be frowned upon. We teach our children to do as we say, to follow our counsel, to listen to our advice. Shall we then doubt their sincerity when they do that very thing and seek to close with Christ? Shall they be penalized because they were given Christian parents who have set before them the beauty of the gospel and the gracious salvation of our Lord? Something to think about. Regarding the second objection, children are not um, able to comprehend these things. And again, I'm not talking about you know three or four or five. I'm not, I'll get into ages briefly, but that's not the point of this. It's the same requirement for adults and children. So just keep that in mind. Um, but some think that a child is not able to uh, comprehend these things. Now, childlike faith is all that is needed, though that faith is not childish or vain. As Spurgeon said, it would be a good thing for us all if we had never stopped being boys and girls, but had added to all the excellencies of a child the virtues of a man. And the preacher of the gospel may say, as Spurgeon did, if I am understand by, understood by poor people, by servant girls, by children, I'm sure I can be understood by others. But we sometimes have the view that children are not able to understand these things and therefore are not likely to be converted. But why should it surprise us that God would save a young sinner any more than it would surprise us that God would save an old sinner? 
Incidentally, we can be prone to doubt the conversion of children. Spurgeon said this, this is the last quote. Spurgeon said, another bad result of this view of children is that the conversion of children is not believed. Certain suspicious people always file their teeth a bit when they hear of a newly converted child. They will have a bite at him if they can. They'll say, oh, that was a false conversion. Look at him, look how he's behaving. They very rightly, okay, here's the key, they very rightly insist that these children should be carefully examined before they are baptized and admitted into the church. All right, so there is that sense of, we're just not going to say, oh, you, you believe in Jesus? Okay, you're baptized. However, they are wrong in insisting that only in exceptional instances are they to be received. We quite agree with them as to the care to be exercised, but it should be the same in all cases, and neither more nor less in the cases of children. Okay, so what's our standard for baptism? It should be the same for children and as adults. Now listen, a child is able to think a child that is able to think about issues seriously in general is able to think about the demands of the gospel. I'm not arguing for baptism of our children willy-nilly because, oh, they said they want to be a Christian, nor am I uh, suggesting that we expect a toddler to grasp these things. That's not what I'm saying. However, as our children grow and reach the age of 10, 11, 12, the age when Jesus amazed those in the temple, Jonathan Edwards entered Yale, and John Stuart Mill studied scholastic philosophy, we should have little concern that what prevents their conversion at that point is their mental ability. In fact, I believe a child could be saved earlier, but the age isn't the concern, it's the standard, the profession of faith, repentance, and obedience. And so I do not believe that objection holds much water, that they're incapable of thinking about these things. Finally, and this ties in with that last point, it's unwise to baptize a young person because they might express rebellion later on, right? They might just be doing it now, but later on they're going to fall away. That could happen, but it can equally happen with adults, it didn't pre- prevent the apostles from baptizing people that fell away. First John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. Of all the people, here's my question. Of all the people in our community, right? Okay, we have Delaware, Maryland. Just think of our community. Of all the people in our community who are not baptized right now, whom should we expect from that group of people that are not baptized to have the clearest understanding of the demands of Christian discipleship? Right. Think of all those people living out in the world, willfully ignorant of the truth of scriptures. Think of one of them hearing the gospel and expressing a desire for baptism, right? That person, I mean, you have no clue what that person has been taught about obedience and Christian faith. Now consider your own children. If you're doing a halfway decent job, just a halfway decent job of training your children and conducting family worship, your child, I submit, will know more theology by the age of 10 than 80% of the pastors in the Delmarva Peninsula. So, again I ask, of all the people in our community who are not baptized now, but will come to have a desire for baptism, who should we expect to have the clearest understanding of the demands of Christian discipleship? Would it not be our own children? Would it not be those for whom we've labored to teach the gospel, not for an hour, not out witnessing for an hour, not for a week, not for a month, but for years and years and years and years? I submit that it is our children who we may have the most reason to believe understand the gospel's demands for obedience and faith and obedience. If they don't, then we have failed. And by holding forth the gospel and the demands for obedience as it relates to baptism, we are presenting our children with a realistic picture of the Christian life. Those who truly desire baptism should not be hindered, just as those adults who do should not be hindered. Our children who come to profess faith, repentance, and obedience should be received with joy, not doubt. Now, right, I don't suggest making baptism a trite thing, 
for that would obscure its meaning. But nor do I suggest making it an, an elite thing for those advanced in years and wisdom, for that also would obscure its meaning. By not hindering our children from coming to baptism when they truly desire it, uh, we are encouraging their maturity, faith, and commitment to Christ, both their Lord and ours. The Church of Jesus Christ is to accept the two ordinances that the Lord instituted for her. Baptism, as one of those ordinances, is extremely important to take seriously, ponder, and apply. It represents our death to sin, remission of sins, and newness of life in Christ. It is our willing entry into the Lord's army. It is to be applied to those who profess repentance, faith, and obedience. The connection between obedience and baptism that John the Baptist proclaimed ought to be preached in our own day in order that Christian discipleship would not be viewed as a trifle to be entered lightheartedly. Baptism represents our profession of faith in Christ, our joining with him and his church. It is not to be taken lightly, and I fear it has been taken far too lightly in our day. So may we consider the demand to be baptized if you are to be a Christian and what it means to us, to our children, and to those around us. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had to consider this topic. It's a very broad topic and there's so much. Uh, I pray that even though I sped through this, um, there's some valuable things that we can glean from this, that we can consider in our lives as we remember um, those of us who have been baptized, our baptism, our profession of faith and obedience to Christ and what we obligated ourselves to in that baptism, that we said we are identifying with Christ and we will do all that he commands us. And I pray that that is the image of baptism as, as one that unites us in Christ's death and we are dead to sin now and to walk in newness of life, that we would live out our life in accordance with what our baptism represents and help the children here to think about baptism as you have presented it in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.